This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome to the How We Got Here podcast. This is episode two of season four. And I'm your host, Rachel DePampa, an investigative reporter, and let's face it, total podcast geek. I thought about running through some of my favorites for you, but I really want you to listen to this one. So let's get going. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of October 12th through the 18th. Andrew, do you know the How We Got Here podcast? It's super popular. Do I know the How We Got Here podcast? Yeah, it's real popular. Does a bear live in the woods? (laughs) You're listening to my conversation with trusted NBC12 meteorologist Andrew Frieden, a fan favorite and repeat guest of our podcast. If you put me on here, my kids will finally respect me as a father again. Because you listen all the time. Absolutely. It's absolutely. I love it, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. So we're talking hurricanes. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you back talking hurricanes, too, because I feel like every time we talk to you, it's a derecho or a hurricane. <laughs> well, there's more stuff to come, and I hope to be on a future episode, maybe season four I can be on. This is season four. What? <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad you got renewed. <laughs> Oh, Andrew, we are truly happy to have you back, I guess. (laughs) But let's talk about the most powerful hurricane to ever move over central Virginia, Hurricane Hazel. So this is the 15th of October um, in 1954, and that's right in the peak of hurricane season. And one of the interesting things about Hazel is it could have been much worse. It was a really fast mover. So in recent times, people that are listening remember hurricanes that or tropical systems that produced damage over long periods of time. Remember Gaston just sat there and rained. Irene produced, you know, 12 hours of tropical storm wind gusts. This was a really quick storm that was off the coast of the Carolinas in the morning. And then by the evening, it was up in New York somewhere, or at least in Pennsylvania. So it was a really quick moving storm, but a pretty devastating storm. We have it as our fifth worst hurricane, but it also produced the strongest wind gusts in Richmond that we've ever recorded in modern times from a landfalling tropical system. 79 mile an hour gust, which actually isn't a ton stronger than Isabel. So it was a similar, I think, situation for people who lived through Isabel, but Isabel likely lasted a lot longer than Hazel did. It was a quick punch. Hazel was the most intense hurricane of the 1954 Atlantic hurricane season. The storm killed 469 people in Haiti before striking the U.S. as a Category 4 near the border of North and South Carolina. Oak Island, just south of the Outer Banks and a few minutes north of Myrtle Beach, was slammed. We dove into our NBC12 archives to bring you an interview with Connie Leggett from the 59th anniversary of the storm in 2013. Of course, everything's different now. I don't think I'll ever forget one detail of what happened that day. She encountered Hazel on what was supposed to be one of the happiest times of her life. She was 17 years old, spending her honeymoon on Oak Island in a little small uh, cottage that belonged to my parents. We did not get the warning because no one knew we were there. We were awakened, as I said, with the, the wind and the rain. We tried to get out by car, but the water had already flooded. Connie and her husband took off on foot, finding a nearby two-story home. They spent almost five harrowing hours on the top floor, watching the water rise other homes floating by. Hear dishes and furniture crashing downstairs as the water was rising in the downstairs apartment. And the water, you could feel the water under the floor. It's the same sensation you have when you're riding in a boat. 
the young couple rolled up a mattress, stuck it out the window, and jumped on. We were at the mercy of the storm, and we ended up on the back of the island in the tops of some of the scrub oak trees. We really thought that we were doomed when we were caught in the tree, that that was, but actually I think the tree saved our life because we were not caught in the suction of the water. Ninety-five people lost their lives to Hazel in the United States. It caused 281 million in damage here. Killing another 81 people, Norfolk recorded gusts over 100 miles per hour. Roofs were blown away. Trees and power lines came down. The tugboat Indian carrying five barges sank in the James River. Four of eight crew members drowned. The storm then moved over Canada. Meteorologist Andrew Frieden looked at the old weather maps of this historic hurricane. This was devastating in Haiti. It was devastating, I think, in the Bahamas. Is there a difference with these quick movers versus the ones that sick? Irene did that. Irene was a long process of getting from one end of the storm to the other. So if you have a landfalling tropical system, what you don't want is it to stall. We've seen that recently, Hurricane Michael and Harvey in Houston, like these, these these storms that just rain and rain and rain and wind and wind. This one was racing. It was absolutely flying. So that's, you know, a relatively good thing. But you're, it's like being hit with a, a really strong punch, but not punch after punch after punch. But yeah, Hazel was one of the worst weather disasters ever to happen around here. And it, it caused tons of damage. But the longer a hurricane or a tropical system sits on top of you, the more flooding you get and the more trees that come down and therefore more people lose power. The eye of Hazel rushed across the East Coast 66 years ago. But Andrew says it's a storm worth revisiting. It's easy to forget, right? We just sort of forget and we move on. And, you know, it's been a while since Irene, which is our last real kind of, you know, monster storm to impact us. And so you just want people on a regular basis to be thinking about how they can prepare. Now, it's interesting because a lot of folks stocked up. You know, when we're recording this, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. You kind of have to think that could happen at any time. I might not be able to go to the grocery store. The road might be washed out. The power might be out for a couple of weeks. You just always have to think. And I'm not saying people need to have a, you know, clear out a bedroom, put all the kids in one bedroom and then stock supplies. But you just have to have a plan. You know, where do we meet up as a family if things go wrong? Have a way to get alerts. Hopefully people have our NBC 12 first alert weather app. Ding! Free plug. I'll allow it. I mean, I do work there too. Come on. <laughs> You have to be aware and alert, in particular when it comes to hurricane season. And nowadays, I mean, satellite data, we're so good at forecasting and seeing these form. Hazel's path of destruction climbed the coast in a way that today would sound alarms. It, by the way, took a classic track. This is the one that keeps me up at night, the track where something makes landfall, maybe in the Outer Banks or in North Carolina, and then comes up to the west of the city of Richmond, so we get the worst of the storm. That's the, that's the bad track. The world's worst case would be a landfalling hurricane coming right up the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, which has, as far as I can tell, never happened. It'd be very hard to get a storm to turn. It would have to do like what Sandy did and literally go up the coast and then turn west, which is exceedingly rare. That's the worst case scenario because that would be absolute devastation of, you know, eastern Virginia. And the flooding would come so far up the James and our other tidal rivers would be in just a total mess. So that's the worst case scenario. But in lieu of that, which has never happened, the much more plausible thing is a Category 5 or 4 comes to the Outer Banks or somewhere in southern North Carolina, heads north, and ends up putting Richmond in the I-95 corridor, including the Tri-Cities, Emporia, Fredericksburg, D.C., on the right side of the center of the storm. And in that case, you get biggest winds, the heaviest rain, the biggest tornado threat. And if we ever had something that actually went through as a hurricane, 75 plus mile an hour sustained winds. Again, Hazel had gusts of 79. Isabel, I think, had gusts of 73. If you ever had one that was a real legit hurricane, I just shudder to think it. It would take weeks to get power back on and, and you know water treatment and all that. It would be a really bad thing. And it certainly can happen. So I'm sitting here going, okay, is this ever going to happen? And it could, certainly could. When you say it's on the right side of the storm, you actually mean, well, that's the wrong side of the that's storm. That's a darn good point. So if you have a, 
the storm track, if you draw a line on the right side, is the wrong side, right? You don't want to be on that side of the storm because you have a combination of the forward speed, higher wind shear, interaction with the land. That's where you don't want to be. That's where the severe weather is. That's where the tornadoes get spun up. So yeah, the right side is the wrong side. Good, for, good one, Rachel. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Hold on. That's me taking a note. I love when I can drop some knowledge on Andrew. Just saying. October 15, 1954. Hurricane Hazel climbs across the Atlantic, killing hundreds, wiping out homes and power, devastating Virginia. Hazel, though quick and in a hurry, a humbling reminder of a hurricane's fury. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Kids who are born today will rarely have to memorize a phone number. Other than 911. 911, what is your emergency? Every cell phone has a built-in address book that will dial any number you wish to save. If you're looking for a phone number, it's just a few clicks away with the help of Google. The internet is largely responsible for the death of an American household staple, the phone book. I have a feeling a few of you who listen to this podcast have no idea what a phone book even looks like. For that, I say, Google it. On October 14, 2010, regulators in New York approved a request from Verizon to allow them to stop mass printing residential phone books that decision would lead to the death of those white pages. Right here in Virginia, Verizon made a similar request to the Commonwealth a few months earlier, but it wasn't until May of 2011 that the State Corporation Commission approved the request, signaling the release of the proverbial guillotine to kill phone books for good. Often a dusty and musty fixture of junk drawers Phone books were once a prized possession. The excitement when that familiar thud came to your front door is tough to imagine in the digital age. But it had to feel like a gift when you got it, almost like an unexpected Amazon delivery. For you millennials listening today, the sheen of the front page coupled with contrasting inner pages, which were oddly smooth to the touch, even the unique smell of a phone book. If you think about this long enough, it's a smell that's hard to forget. Not to mention, they made up the first perfect database for hours of prank phone calls. Come on, you were 12 once. You know you did that. Maybe you were 10, 9, middle school. The first telephone directory was actually issued in February 1878 in New Haven, Connecticut. It was a single page made up of 50 customers. That single sheet of 50 names would multiply into an absolute monstrosity by the 21st century. NPR reports that in 2010, the United States produced 804,000 tons of phone books every year. A single ton is 2,000 pounds, so 804,000 tons is unfathomable. At the time, it represented five pounds of paper for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. In Virginia, Verizon's request to stop printing the behemoth books was estimated to save 1,640 tons of paper annually. That's the equivalent of 3.28 million pounds if you take the average weight of a 2019 Volkswagen Beetle, you would need more than a thousand of them to get anywhere near that. And if you let your mind go to where all that paper comes from, that's a lot of trees. That was the basis of Verizon's request. The white pages were a waste of energy, trees, and money. 
When most of their customers took one look at the book, perhaps felt a pang of nostalgia, you know who you are, and threw it away. Actually, I left the last one I ever got at the end of the driveway for about a week. I believe it rained twice. Might have run over it with a tire. Don't worry, I eventually did put it in the trash can. In 2011, research showed that only 11% of American households used the white pages. Just over one in 10, it's a safe bet to assume that number has dropped even lower today. October 14th, 2010. The death toll was ringing for the American phone book. Though thousands had been sacrificed to the neglect at the end of a driveway, <clears throat> forced to lose the inevitable battle with Mother Nature, we often don't think of just how important those books were before the digital age. Americans have largely ignored the creation of a relic in this modern era, something used so often for decades, now completely obsolete. Behind Enemy Lines, from a mansion in Churchill. Even if the people of Richmond and the Confederacy didn't realize that she was aiding escaping Union prisoners or supplying information to the Union Army, they knew that she was a Unionist. A woman orchestrated the Richmond Underground, a spy network that operated within the confines of the capital of the Confederacy. Before the cunning espionage by a member of Richmond's elite, we have to go back to October 15th, 1818, the day Elizabeth Van Loo was born in the city that would grow to loathe her loyalty to the Union. For this segment, we went back to our sponsors at the Library of Virginia to talk with a man named Dr. Trenton Heiser. Been at the library since 1997. I'm currently the Senior Manuscripts Acquisition and Digital Archivist. A nice long title for, <laughs> for my position. Mainly what I do is I, I get collections of manuscripts, people's letters, diaries, whatever kind of papers they may have left behind and process them, catalog them so they can be used by researchers. As you might imagine, he's been able to get his hands on some rare documents over the years. I could go crazy trying to think of all the of all the neat things I've run across. For our story on Elizabeth Van Loo, he took a second look at letters written by Van Loo herself and those that were sent to her in Richmond. Many of these surviving letters are written after the Civil War. For Van Loo's early years and spy network, we are using information from Dr. Elizabeth Barron at the University of Virginia, renowned for her research on the Richmond spy. The young Elizabeth Van Loo was sent to Philadelphia for her education, where it's believed her abolitionist views flourished. But that did not line up with her father. John Van Loo had well over a dozen slaves working for the family until his death in 1843. Even though his wife Eliza and daughter Elizabeth privately abhorred the practice, after his death, the pair secretly worked to free as many of the family's slaves as they could, which we detailed for you in episode four of season three, when we shared the story of Mary Bowser, one of Van Loo's spies who may or may not have had direct access to the White House of the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis. Most people who had born and raised in Richmond just took slavery as a, a way of life. She had a different perspective on it. Elizabeth Van Loo chose to stay in Richmond during the war, believing those who supported secession and fought for the Confederacy were traitors. Imagine it, you're a woman around 1860, living in a city, and you're one of a handful of people to adamantly disagree with one of the foundations of the society around you. You wouldn't have a voice. 
but Van Lu did. In the war's early years, Van Lu helped Union prisoners at the nearby Libby Prison, just blocks from her mansion on East Gray Street. She and her mother bribed Confederate guards and officials to give prisoners more food and even helped some Yankees escape. Many used her mansion as a safe house. As Dr. Varen puts it, soon a clandestine interracial spy network was formed under Van Lu's leadership. These unionists would help prisoners and even civilians escape the Confederate capital with disguises, maps, and contacts to get them to Union lines. Van Lu's work gained the attention of the Union's military leadership, and in 1863, Major General Benjamin Butler enlisted the Richmond Underground into federal service. Van Lu oversaw the operation using code names and invisible ink. She and her agents carried messages hidden within clothing or everyday items like bowls and eggshells. The work of the Richmond Underground was so valuable to the Union that in a post-war letter, the chief of military intelligence for the Army of the Potomac was talking about Van Lu when he wrote, for a long, long time, she represented all that was left of the power of the U.S. government in the city of Richmond. She was even investigated by Confederate authorities in 1864, but it was concluded that even though Van Lu was unfriendly to the Confederate government, she hasn't done anything to hurt the Southern cause other than share her opinions with friends. A conclusion that couldn't have been further from the truth. I think we should take this as a lesson. Never underestimate a woman. Nothing was done, and Van Lu's espionage continued until Richmond fell in April of 1865. Her notoriety as a spymaster didn't come to light until a few years after the Civil War. This is also the time frame where letters to and from Van Lu survive to this day. Dr. Trenton Heiser explains Van Lu's mindset for us. We still get a sense of how she's reacting to the end of the war, her life in post-war Richmond as a former Union spy and, and Union supporter during her time in the Confederacy. You can tell it, it weighed on her in some manner. She doesn't feel guilty about it, don't get me wrong. But you know, just sort of the responses she's getting from people when she's been true to her country, which is the United States, not the Confederacy. President Ulysses S. Grant, the revered Union general, whom she'd helped with intelligence during the war, appointed her postmaster of Richmond in 1869. That's right, in the midst of Reconstruction. So you can imagine how many in the former Confederate capital felt about that. Not only was a woman being appointed, by then she was a well-known spy who helped crumble the Confederacy. There are a lot of people who don't like that. And then her whole process as she clearly wants to be called postmaster, not postmistress. And she brings in a lot of people who otherwise might not be in the post office as clerks and such, African-Americans, women, people who, before the war, they're not going to be serving in those roles in the post office. And so she's really changing the landscape. She's helping a lot of her friends and the people who worked with her during the war in the espionage front. She sees it as, you know, as a chance to help them out as much as being helped herself by having this position. One of the letters at the Library of Virginia is written by Elizabeth Van Lu to her mother in Richmond. She sent it from Philadelphia while visiting family. But even there, you get a sense that she feels separated because nobody can kind of really understand what she's been through except the people that she went through it with, including her mother. And just sort of, you know, oh, everybody's treating me wonderful, but I, I want to come home back to Richmond. She actually writes on the letter, and I think this is one of the reasons why we don't have so much from her. She writes on the letter, burn this letter, which fortunately her mother didn't do, so that we have it. And she's very reluctant, I think, to share or let her feelings get out too much. Burning letters, such a spy thing to do. I love it. And it's great that her mother kept it, so we have some of Van Lu's records today. 
While postmaster of Richmond, Van Loo also pushed for women to get the right to vote. As a strong-minded woman, she sees this as an opportunity to let women advance as well. She's sort of a suffragist even before, you know, there's a, a suffrage movement in Virginia. In 1870, she hosted Susan B. Anthony when she spoke in Richmond and was an honorary vice president for the Virginia branch of Anthony's National Women's Suffrage Association. When President Grant left office in 1877, Van Lu was replaced as postmaster in Richmond, but she moved to Washington, D.C. for a job under the postmaster there. She's there for like four years and is very unhappy because one, she's not in Richmond, and two, post office up there is actually run by somebody who is a Southerner and knows who she is and makes her life difficult. And all she really wants to do is come home, back to Richmond. Throughout the Civil War, and even some post-war years, Van Lu's wealth diminished because she was using all that she could on the Richmond Underground and helping those who helped her spy on the Confederacy. One of the neat things about the collection is, is we have a letter, that as far as we know, is the last one written that, that's found from Mary Jane Richards, who's also known as Mary Bowser. And at the time, she's going by the name Mary Jane Denman. And she's in New York. Remember, this is the slave turned spy who Elizabeth was so close to that had five different aliases. Again, we told you all about her last season. They've obviously been in, in touch over the years after Mary Denman has left Richmond. She's writing how she appreciates everything that Van Lu has been doing for her, even after the war. Van Lu is sending her money if she can. And there's a sense you can kind of get into the letter that while she's appreciative of it, Denman is still trying to make her own way in the post-war America. Apparently, she's apologizing for not using the money to come to Richmond and live with Van Lu. I think Denman feels she might lose her own self-identity if she does that. So a little bit of a tension, not, not any anger or hatred or anything, but just a little tension between two people, one who feels obligated to the other, yet wants to retain her identity on her own. Such an interesting thought. Two women, one born a slave, into a world that didn't give her an identity. The other, born into wealth with all the means in the world. There is also a little scrap of paper in the collection, and I can't tell if it's part of a letter or if it's just part of something she was writing down, Van Lu, that is, that she was writing down as time went on. You know, the rest of it was lost, and we just happened to have this little piece. It's actually a square. It's been written on. Some of it's been scratched out. She's obviously reminiscing about the war and what she did. She says, understand, not for my people, but for my country. I stood firm and faithful so she still feels that she has to explain why she did what she did. Not because she feels like she did anything wrong, but just to try and make other people understand why she remained a unionist and why she worked to help the Union Army win the war. Her family fortune depleted. The aged Van Lu got in touch with the family of Paul Revere, one of the Union officers she helped during the war. And yes, the grandson of that Paul Revere, they and other wealthy families in Boston regularly sent her money. But people in Richmond still treated Van Lu like a pariah, an outcast. Her family doctor said other city residents, quote, shunned her like the plague. Children were encouraged to see her as a witch. In her spying days, there was a popular myth that Van Lu acted crazy to not arouse suspicion. But it appears that myth was born out of stories written after her death. Van Lu certainly never pretended to be crazy. For various reasons, she might sort of dress down as she went out, so not to draw attention to herself. Contradicts the idea if you know if you're walking down the street and acting crazy, people are at least going, look, there's nutty Van Lu going down the street. She was very intelligent, very careful in what she did rather than just off her rocker lack of a better term. We asked Dr. Heiser to sum up his thoughts on Van Lu after his recent research in just one word. And with most cases, just one wasn't enough. I think one word is dedicated. She's dedicated to what she believes in. 
and I think caring is the other word that she's she's caring about people and those who are disadvantaged by the laws and customs of the society around and that she cares about what happens to them as much as what's happening to her. Dedicated and caring. Not necessarily the first two words that come to mind when you think spy. That's probably one of those things she struggled with after the war is is to be dedicated and caring have to rely on subterfuge and trickery to achieve what you think is best because you're dedicated to something different than those people who are around you and the people you're caring about are not necessarily the people that everybody else around you is caring about. Elizabeth Van Loo never married and did not have any children. On September 25, 1900, she died in her Churchill mansion. The city of Richmond bought the property and demolished her home just 11 years later. Perhaps out of spite for the Union sympathizer whose spy network was once headquartered there. Bellevue Elementary School now stands in its place. I think she considered herself a Richmonder. I think she considered herself a Virginian. She did consider herself a citizen of the United States. For her, one of the great tragedies of the war is that her fellow citizens didn't feel that same attachment. October 15, 1818. Elizabeth Van Loo was born in Richmond, the same city she would later defy as a rebellious government took hold. This spy master coordinated a campaign of espionage just over a mile from the White House of the Confederacy, risking her neck to follow her heart. For centuries, women have been relegated to the fringes of obscurity in history. A lot of things these days are based on men in history and we never like get our own statues. It's only been one century since women were allowed to vote in this country. To put that in context for you, several of the now removed Confederate statues from Richmond's Monument Avenue had been in place for more than a decade. Before ballots came from the hand of a woman, in the Commonwealth. As of 2011, there were around 5,200 public statues depicting historic figures around the United States. Of those, not even 400 were women. Women's roles in history are often as important, if not more, than their male counterparts. And only recently have we seen them immortalized in bronze to be honored for eternity. October 14, 2019. The first seven of 12 statues of women are unveiled at the Virginia Women's Monument in Richmond's Capitol Square. It was an idea of a woman who believed that women's contributions to Virginia's history had not been acknowledged. We're not saying that they're the 12 most important women. We're saying they represent a wide variety of women's backgrounds and experiences. The full name is Voices from the Garden, the Virginia Women's Monument. The idea started nearly a decade before the statues were unveiled, when the General Assembly established the Women's Commission in 2010 to recommend an appropriate monument in Capitol Square to commemorate the contributions of the women of Virginia. That commission was established thanks to the relentless work of, you guessed it, women. That's because women get things done. True story. Sorry guys, female podcast host. Had to go there. <laughs> During the groundbreaking ceremony in December of 2017, then-Governor Terry McAuliffe made the announcement that in turn made history. At a very difficult time that we have in our nation today as we hear about different issues as it relates to women, I think it's appropriate that we here in Virginia are leading the way once again out front. This will be the first time a monument of its type 
representing many different centuries of women's contributions to our great commonwealth will ever have been put on capital grounds of any of the 50 state capitals in the United States of America. The monument is in the shape of an oval where visitors are encouraged to interact with the life-size statues placed at eye level. A bronze sundial stands in the middle atop a granite pedestal adorned with the names of the counties of Virginia. Side note here, it's not clear who proofread the names of the Northern Virginia counties, but on that sundial, Loudoun is spelled wrong. It's missing the second U before the N. It's also one of those counties people say wrong all the time. Luden, it's Loudoun. But even though it wasn't perfect, it was probably better than the wooden sundial I made in eighth grade shop class. I did get an award for that though. I think I got best shop student of the year. <laughs> anyway, tempered glass panels, a metaphor for the social filter that has obscured women's accomplishments from the public, are carved with the names of 230 other notable Virginia women, with additional space purposely left blank. It's really not just homage to the past, but really a nod to the future because there are a lot of young women out here making history that we know of right now who will eventually, or can eventually be featured as historical women here in Virginia on this monument. The statues themselves each cost around $200,000, with the entire project sporting a price tag of $3.8 A member of the Women's Monument Commission spoke to a focus group of young women from the University of Richmond who hoped the statues would follow three conditions. None would stand on pedestals, none would be on horseback, and none would have weapons. Those three stipulations should give you a pretty clear idea of what the ladies wanted the monuments not to resemble. <clears throat> Hello, Monument Avenue. The director of the Brooklyn-based studio that made the statues Ivan Schwartz was in Richmond for the unveiling on that historic October day. The important thing is that we're filling a huge void. You know, if you think about Central Park in New York, there's a statue of Mother Goose and Alice in Wonderland. Those are the only statues of women in Central Park in New York City. It's hugely important, and I think it's a very historic moment for the country. Symbols are changing in America, and this is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. Schwartz would go on to say that women have been excised from the marble pedestal of history. And that the women's monument doesn't change the past, but it begins to open a room with a new view. Although only seven statues were installed at first, the remaining five are expected to be on display by the end of the year. Among the 12 women to forever grace Virginia's Capitol grounds, Richmond's own Maggie Walker, who we told you about in season two. Laura Lou Scherer Copenhaver, an entrepreneur from Western Virginia. You may never have heard of her. She was a writer, heavily involved with the Lutheran Church, and she established a school in Smith County, Virginia to make sure young children could get an education. She helped farm families flourish by developing new ways for them to make money. She now has a statue one of her descendants was there as it was unveiled. I hope every child in the Commonwealth and especially the children in Southwest Virginia get to come here. It's important to have role models. Girls, boys, or whomever, we need role models. There's a Pamunkey Indian chief from the 17th century who was a descendant of Obi Kankanu, who we told you all about in season three. She took power after her husband died in 1656. A Jamestown colonist, First Lady Martha Washington, Henrico's own Virginia Randolph, a dressmaker and confidant to Mary Todd Lincoln, a suffragist, and several other women from varying backgrounds in Virginia's 400-year history who made a profound impact on how we got here, but were never properly recognized until now. Thank you.
When United States history was made on October 14, 2019, in Richmond's Capitol Square, around a thousand people watched as Girl Scouts pulled blue covers from seven bronze figures. Girls from today gazing into the eyes of the history makers of yesterday. The obscurity of their accomplishments that changed society forever. Now finally, in focus. Sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. Exit light, enter night. Haunting lyrics made famous in Metallica's song, Enter Sandman. Some of you are instantly transported to a Virginia Tech football game. The team famously enters the stadium to this gripping music. But on October 17, 2009, that famous song and many others was played to thousands of fans at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville at the John Paul Jones Arena. And one fan, a Virginia Tech student who drove all the way from Roanoke for the big concert, never got to hear the band. She went missing. Her name, Morgan Harrington. Morgan's a great kid and this is very atypical behavior, and she's a wonderful person. And I was expecting her to come home yesterday afternoon after the concert so she and I could study for a math test that she has tomorrow. That's a distraught Dan Harrington. Morgan's panicked father, the day after her disappearance, He's holding up photos of the striking 20-year-old, piercing, soulful blue eyes, staring back at you in nearly every photo. You can't escape them. Long, blonde hair that's sometimes wavy, a large, inviting smile. And I say disappeared because no one knew what happened to her. She vanished at that concert. Just a few personal belongings left behind. It was not like Morgan to be gone so long. Her family immediately suspected something terrible. He has so much more to live and so much more to give. Please let her come back to her family. We need her. And to the person who has taken Morgan from us, Please, just let her go. That's Morgan's mother, Jill, one of the most open and engaging people I've ever met in the midst of a tragedy. She and Dan Harrington stood in front of cameras broadcasting into the homes of strangers nearly every night for weeks, desperately believing maybe Morgan was being held against her will and could eventually come home. People do come back, you know, that, that not everyone is lost, and, and we, we have to hold out hope that our daughter will return to us. And if my descriptions of this story sound somewhat personal from me, it's because I was there. In Charlottesville, in the days after she went missing, I met her grief-stricken and strong-willed parents more times than I can count. And their hearts were left so bare to us, like many of you, I felt connected to them. Their pain, palpable. Morgan's disappearance stuck with you. A 20-year-old daughter in college going with friends to see a concert for a beloved band. This is me back in October 2009, standing in front of the doors of the arena. Police don't know exactly how Harrington ended up outside the arena, but we know she spent several minutes going door to door trying to get back inside. Her last cell phone contact with anyone was at 848 when she told her friends she was maybe going to try and find a ride. She was stuck outside that venue because it had a no re-entry policy. She did call her friends when she got outside the arena and advised them because of the 
the policy that she could not get back in and would find a way to get either up with them or to get home. That's the voice of Lieutenant Joe Rader with the Virginia State Police. You'll hear him a lot as we sift through the archives. Not long after she vanished, police tell us Morgan was spotted by witnesses on the arena grounds until around 9.30 that night. Her purse and cell phone were found in Lanigan Field, which at the time was being used as overflow parking for the concert. The field is next to a bridge. Somewhere out there lies the answers, or lies the vital link of information that we need. Police believed Morgan was last seen walking down the Copley Road Bridge, heading away from the concert. They theorized she was maybe trying to get a ride. I encourage anyone who may have given Morgan Harrington a ride and then dropped her off somewhere not to be scared to come forward. We need that information. Within a week, Morgan's disappearance was national news. Dan and Jill Harrington never stopped making sure people knew their daughter's name. You have to hold out hope, you know, that uh, Morgan will come back to us. This is probably a parent's worst nightmare. You know, no one ever expects to be in this situation and we, we have to hold out hope that we're gonna see our daughter again. It was clear the concern was growing. State police announced a $100,000 reward for Morgan's safe return. That amount would later grow to $150,000 when Metallica stepped in to help. Students from Virginia Tech and UVA rattled. I carry a knife in my bag, but especially now that you know people are actually going missing. I actually have a little sister here as a first year, and I told her that she really shouldn't have to worry walking around grounds at night, and uh, I sort of want to retract that statement. Police were relentless, asking for help from the public daily. We believe that there are probably other people who were in that vicinity, either parked or on foot, who most likely should or would have seen Morgan. Dan and Jill's resolve, never breaking. Humbled and so grateful for all the love and support we've gotten. We really are. But eventually, hope started to wane. Dan made a point of showing me last night on the microwave the clock. He said, this is the time two weeks ago, the last time Morgan was seen. Strangers, friends, loved ones showed up by the hundreds to Charlottesville to look for Morgan. They fanned out in an ominous grid search. I say that because it's usually what happens when you're starting to look for a body. These searches often begin in the place where the person was last seen. In this case, the Copley Bridge here in Charlottesville. Searchers will fan out, they'll be given vests to wear, they'll be told what to look for and exactly what to do if they find anything. The quicker we can have more people look at this and look for Morgan, the better it is that we're gonna be able to get Morgan back. Father God, we come together as a community of volunteers. Kaylin Lavoie knew Morgan from high school. She drove from JMU to walk through the woods under train trestles, looking for any sign of her friend. She's such a sweet girl, so any way I can help her, her family would be really good. Down the railroad tracks and into the brush. It might be easier to go this way. Which way? It's very thick, very thick with vines and briars. Groups of 10 search for one. To help that young lady, to bring her home. The brush has swung them down a little bit. This has given me uh, more strength to deal with this. It, it's the relationships and the community that we have um, that has held us up so far and will continue holding us up and will find our daughter Morgan. My hope is that this doesn't end, you know, if we don't find Morgan, that it doesn't end this weekend, that we continue to have people look for Morgan. Weeks turn to months. Falls chill, morphing to winter's first snowfall. Police started to release new details, really to keep the media interested and the public searching. There's now a photo of a necklace with large crystal chain links. It's the one Morgan was wearing the night she was last seen alive. For the first time, investigators tell us Morgan was drinking the night she disappeared and was likely not thinking clearly. The mere fact that I confirm that Morgan Harrington did consume alcohol does in no way reflect upon what happened to her that night. It's a small part of the puzzle. Each time Lieutenant Joe Rader steps in front of the camera, 
he starts to talk more directly to the person who took her. It is possible that someone totally innocent at first had innocent intentions and things went bad. It's also very possible someone with criminal intent saw a vulnerable target and took the opportunity. If you're carrying a burden, you will continue to carry the burden. We will help you work through that burden. People do not just vanish. Someone has seen something and someone, it is our belief, took our daughter. Whoever took Morgan is still in this community and this is a vulnerable community. Dan was not wrong. Charlottesville was the playing field of a killer. With flurries cutting through the bitter air on January 26, 2010, just a little over three months after she disappeared, the call we all knew and dreaded came through. Skeletal remains are found on a farm off Route 29 in southern Albemarle County. 10 miles from where Morgan disappeared. And the items recovered near the remains left little doubt. Morgan Harrington was no longer just missing. Now we begin the work to determine how she came to be in this particular remote location, what the time of death was. We'll be able to hopefully identify who was responsible for her being where she was found. David Bass found what was left of Morgan's body. I hope it's closure for him. Yes, it's very sad. There was a bad storm the night before. He was checking the fences around his 750-acre farm, making sure there wasn't any damage. Bass told us he came across what he first thought was a deer, but then he took a closer look. He realized it was a human skull with no hair and how her body ended up there, an even bigger mystery. This part of his farm is remote. You can only get there by foot. There's no other way. You'd have to go through barbed wire fences, cross rivers and streams. It, it's a complete mystery to me. At the time that Miss Harrington would have disappeared, the hayfield would have been up to about your waist. Whatever we discover from this time forward, we must be very careful because we have perpetrator or perpetrators at large that we certainly intend to catch and to prosecute. This was now murder and the location of Morgan's body, the crime's most prominent clue. Location, location, location. The person responsible obviously felt it was the most important place to be during a high time of stress. It has streams, it has fences, it has defects, it has terrain that changes. That's important. That's a high risk opportunity to pick that location to take Morgan Harrington, unless you're familiar with the area. The Harringtons had always held out hope Morgan was coming home. Devastated, they emerged a day after learning the news to put flowers on the Copley Road Bridge the last place their daughter was seen alive. Morgan, Morgan is a wonderful person. Even though Morgan has been found and she has been murdered, you know, we, we now need to find the person who did this and, and we will not stop until that person is brought to justice. Dan and Jill were taken by helicopter above the crime scene to see where their daughter's body lay hidden for months. They were asked to do the unspeakable and identify her remains. We do have to figure a way to honor our daughter Morgan. And I will tell you, having seen, that girl even had some lovely bones. She was a long time in that field. I am happy that she was not alive, long, enduring unspeakable things. For the first time in 101 days, I am not thinking every minute, what is he doing to my daughter now? What is he doing to her? What is she having to endure? 
Morgan was well loved every single day of her life except the last one. Not everyone on this earth can say that. Their determination to catch a killer, the sole focus now. I'm concerned and determined that he be caught uh, for safety reasons because this was not the first bad thing that this man did. Abduction and murder is not your entry level into a life of crime. He's done bad things before, he's upped his game, and he's likely to do something bad again unless we catch him. As months turned to years with no face to the killer, the Harringtons became activists for other missing women chooses to kill in a savage and brutal way. This Charlottesville man hurt Morgan Harrington enough to break her bones before he murdered her. And I'm quite shocked that, that we do not have more of a response of getting DNA back on uh, a murder case. I will be devastated if another woman is killed here in a similar way that makes us believe that he has been active again. Prophetic. They knew what kind of man they were dealing with long before the rest of us. They were certain a predator was on the loose in Virginia. Through DNA, police would eventually tie Morgan's murder to a 2005 sexual assault in Fairfax City in Northern Virginia. A 26-year-old woman was walking home from the grocery store. It was 10 o'clock at night when she was grabbed from behind, the attacker carried her to a park behind a row of townhomes, beat and sexually assaulted her. He fled only when startled by a passerby. The monster escaped, but there was a sketch. Prior to this, the murder was an abstraction that killed our daughter. There's now a face. 1,196 days that Sketch has been free to do whatever he likes. And you know what he likes to do? He likes to rape and murder women. The Harringtons would help fight for the use of female DNA. That's searching the state database of DNA profiles, not just for exact matches, but near matches. A possible parent, child, or sibling of whoever left the DNA at the crime scene. Although nothing we can do can ever bring back our daughter, with luck and science, we hope that the person who killed our daughter will be brought to justice. They started a national nonprofit foundation, Help Save the Next Girl, aimed at protecting and teaching other young women about personal safety and predatory behavior. They continued to warn Charlottesville there's still danger lurking in the shadows. There was evil here. There was an evil man or men here who killed my daughter, and we want them found and taken out of society. Spit out this evil criminal and let us have him arrested and save another young woman. We will leave no stone unturned. That's what you do when you're looking for the filth and slime that festers in the dark. Five years would go by with no answers until the killer struck again. 18-year-old UVA student Hannah Graham texted her friends on September 13, 2014, that she was on her way to a party but was lost. Her remains were found about five miles from where Harrington's body was discovered. Hannah's disappearance and murder deserves its own telling in a future season. But what you need to know is this time, surveillance cameras in Charlottesville caught an image of Hannah walking with a man. Police would soon identify 32-year-old Jesse Matthew. A mountain of a man, six foot two and 270 pounds, a former collegiate football player. And when I saw him for the first time, I was stunned at how much he looked like the sketch from that rape investigation in Northern Virginia. I kept putting them side by side and staring at them. He was always there. I just couldn't find him. 
After police named Matthew a person of interest in Graham's disappearance, he fled and was later apprehended on a beach in southeast Texas. And police would soon announce Jesse Matthew was the prime suspect in Morgan's murder. The shirt Morgan was wearing the night she disappeared had human hair on it that matched DNA found under the fingernails of the sexual assault victim from Northern Virginia. Investigators also found a dog hair on Harrington's shirt, which tests revealed likely belonged to Matthew's dog, Popcorn. Witnesses told police a man matching Matthew's description was working as a taxi driver the night Morgan went missing. And a dispatcher for the taxi company that Matthew worked for told investigators that Matthew was extremely difficult to reach that night, the night Morgan died. And the night before Morgan's disappearance, Matthew told a customer that the taxi fare could be paid for with sex acts instead of money. Over a decade earlier, Matthew was twice accused of sexual assault at college campuses. He left school after each allegation. He was from Albemarle County and didn't live far from where the bodies were found. An autopsy determined Harrington suffered a broken arm, broken ribs, and a skull fracture. Abducted, raped, murdered, and her body discarded like meat. Jesse Matthew pleaded guilty to the murders of Morgan Harrington and Hannah Graham. He received four consecutive life sentences. The Harringtons faced him in court. He stared at them from across the room as he walked by. Brazen. Brazen. Like, yeah. It was not menacing and scary, but it was brazen. It was not drop eye. It was, was hold on. They stared into the vast and empty eyes of the man who brutally and unapologetically took their daughter. I'm always thinking, how could you have hurt Morgan? How could you have killed someone? Because those girls did not go to heaven on a pink cloud. They were begging for their lives. October 17th, 2009, a college student hoping to listen to one of her favorite bands disappears. Her remains and her family eventually alerting an entire community to a serial predator secretly roaming the streets for nearly a decade. Morgan Harrington's legacy continues the fight to help save the next girl. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Guys, digital director Kate Albright got tired of me calling her out. She actually met some of my annoyingly early editing deadlines. Say what? Thank you, Kate. And to executive producer Colton Weekly. We have to congratulate him, guys. He's now an EP at NBC12 as well. Promotion. I think I'm going to take a little credit for this, you know, with this awesome podcast that could have helped. <laughs> He's going to hate that. Also, thank you to the newest sidekick of our team. That's right, a fourth person helping us out, associate producer Sam Maneri, with all of her research on the Morgan Harrington story. And a special thank you to our guest this week, first-timer on our podcast, Trenton Heiser, with the Library of Virginia. And that's it. Did I forget someone? If you put me on here, my kids will finally respect me as a father again. Oh, yeah. The Andrew Frieden, meteorologist extraordinaire. <laughs> Next week on Episode 3. They didn't know about it until the following morning when they got up with a couple of hangovers. We take you on an extraordinary journey to the North and South Poles with a famous explorer born in Virginia was one night of serious drinking that was responsible for this whole controversy. Plus, tragedy in the skies leads to tears on the racetrack on one of NASCAR's darkest days. The mood at the end of this day matches the weather conditions at the beginning of it. 
depressing. And a deadly delivery in the mail. The week Americans learned to fear bioterrorism. Don't know where else to go, what to do with everything that's going on right now. Should I stay and risk it? Our family gonna lose us by the end of the week. That's next week on episode three. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday. Monday.